to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We're building up a new world. I'm so grateful for this song I learned years ago from my dear mentor, Dr. Vincent Harding. This version is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in Denver, Colorado, which is occupied Cheyenne and Arapaho land, and the faith organizer for showing up for racial justice or surge nationally. This podcast is a project of surge faith and is particularly designed for white people white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you and especially from folks of color listening about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Today, as I sit down to write this out, today is Martin Luther King Day. We woke up to a sheet of ice across the city, and now a few hours later, the weather is doing that weird front range thing where it is both snowing and the sun is trying to shine. Needless to say, it's cold. Though I hate ice, because I'm always, at heart, a southerner, I'm grateful for the moisture. The land here desperately needs it. Maybe our hearts do, too, a year into this presidential administration here at the end of a 500-year age. Maybe we need the rejuvenating moisture that helps keep our hearts beating and supple, even when it's cold and bracing and slippery. Maybe the bracing cold keeps us awake to what we need. Maybe the ice helps keep us focused on the journey instead of distracted by roads we were never meant to go home by in the first place.
So I'm actually going to go backwards a couple of weeks to the Epiphany story. I have been thinking about this story in preparation for the group podcast episode that we ultimately weren't able to do, given our crew's dealings with flu, mostly flu, and fire alarms, and travel. Will Green offered a lovely reflection on the baptism of Jesus text instead, how water is life. Still, the Epiphany story has stayed with me and just won't let me go. I think there is something here for us as white folks to wrestle deeply with, and especially on this Martin Luther King holiday. So, the Epiphany story. It was my beloved who pointed out to me as she was preparing to preach on this story, something I had never really thought about before. Perhaps it's so obvious it never registered as something to think about, but what she pointed out was this. The Magi are outsiders. Obvious, right? I know. The Magi are outsiders. They aren't Jews, first of all. They're from the East, beyond the boundaries of the land, far beyond the Jordan. There were Jews living in Diaspora, but these Magi are not them. The Greek means astrologers, and my Oxford annotated in RSV notes Magi were literate political officials, emissaries that foreign courts sent to new kings and rulers, ambassadors, if you will, which means they have some power. They have some privilege. Privilege like being able to take off on a who-knows-how-long hike to follow a star. Privilege like having an education beyond their own culture and traditions. Privilege like at least having access to gold and costly resins like frankincense and myrrh. Power and privilege. Maybe this explains why this story takes the turns it does because this year for the first time I found myself asking, why in the world do these magi think it's okay to talk to Herod? You see, the story is clear. The star is not over Jerusalem. The star is guiding them to Bethlehem. Yet somehow the magi end up in Jerusalem, maybe just passing through if they had kept their eyes on that star, but they don't. They don't trust what they see. They don't trust other ways of knowing that they clearly have, like dreams. No, they start asking around. And I have to wonder who they're talking to if they manage to get Herod's ear. They're probably not talking to the poor folk, the working folk, right? The people actually like Jesus and his community. My guess is, if they're court emissaries, then they've headed to Herod's court and started chatting up other court officials. It's like a busload of northern well-meaning white church folk rolling up to Birmingham, asking for directions at the police station, and ending up tipping off Bull Connor there's a snick action about to go down. The Magi don't trust what they see. They trust what structures and ideologies of power have taught them to see. They assumed the new king would be found where the old king lived, in Jerusalem in the royal court. They assume the new king exists inside the same power structure as the old king. The magi took their eyes off the prize. They took their eyes off the star. 
They tip Herod off and Herod promptly freaks out, as people in power who feel threatened most often do. It's interesting that Herod doesn't even know the prophecy of his own Jewish tradition, though perhaps that's convenient for him since his own tradition would have harsh words for his selling out to the Roman Empire. At any rate, it's ironic then that it's Herod who tells the Magi to go to Bethlehem. But it's not ironic at all that he tries to co-opt the Magi into collaborating with his violent regime. I also notice this. When the Magi finally get back on track, when they finally train their eyes back to the star and find Jesus, they are overwhelmed with joy. Overwhelmed with joy. Not confusion, not rejection, but joy. They found the new king not in the seat of systemic power, but in a small town to the south. Not obscenely wealthy, but poor. Not a puppet king of the Roman Empire, but a poor brown colonized little kid with no systemic power at all. And they were overwhelmed with joy. Which makes me wonder, what was the conversation on the road the five or so miles between Herod and Jesus? Their eyes refocused, retrained on the star, the star that led them, that was always leading them to exactly where they needed to go. What happened on that stretch of road? Maybe they realized their mistake. Maybe they realized they had relied on embedded oppressive knowledge rather than keeping their eyes on the prize. Maybe they discovered they were part of a whole new kind of liberation story that would get them all free. Whatever happened, they are overwhelmed with joy, and when they leave, they pay attention to other kinds of knowledge. They listen to their dreams and refuse to collaborate with Herod. Hmm. Keep your eyes on the prize. Listen to your dreams. Refuse to collaborate with Herod. Hmm. This is not the story we sing about in that one song, or any of them really. We three kings travel afar, leaving our seemingly not very practical gifts, and go home. That's it. Maybe we might hear about Herod. Maybe we might hear about the Magi getting lost, but the Magi don't get lost. They go right where privilege and power have told them they should go. No, the story is more complicated than any song tells, because the Magi make a mistake. They aren't lost, but they lose their way. They take their eyes off the prize. They take their eyes off the star. They make a mistake. And yes, they regroup and refocus and find their way again, find their way to Jesus, but I don't want to pass over their mistake too quickly, too blithely to do what the uh, to blithely do what the text seems to do and let them go home with no consequence. Because when Herod learns that the Magi won't collaborate with him, he sends his squadrons to Bethlehem to slaughter children. The Magi, who tipped Herod's court off to a threat, who gave over crucial information to Herod as to the time of Jesus' birth, the Magi escape unscathed, untargeted, and unharmed. 
Thank goodness Joseph knows his dreams and gets the family to safety, but what of the children murdered? Did the Magi ever know what happened after they went home by another road? Did you need to take a deep breath? Because I did. The story is more complicated than I have thought about it before. The story troubles me, and I wonder who benefits when we detour around the mistake the Magi make and the violent impact that has. Herod makes his own decisions, of course, and yet, had the Magi stayed the course and kept their eyes on the star, how might the story have been different? What can we learn from this? What lessons are there here for us white folk? I can think of a few. First of all, I straight up literally think about security culture. These are practices we can engage in to keep our movement safe when we know that efforts for black, immigrant, indigenous, class liberation, and others have always and continue to be infiltrated. COINTELPRO, the targeting of Lakota Water Protector Red Fawn by the FBI, the FBI making up the name Black Identity Extremist to harass the movement for Black Lives, Asada Shakur in exile, Angela Davis on trial, sanctuary movement leaders being detained by ICE just last week. Then and now, when systemic power is threatened, it lashes out, it infiltrates, it tries to co-opt us into collaborating. So we practice security culture to keep our movements as safe as we can. Like, don't talk to Herod. Don't give info away to Herod. That's one thing I think we as white folk can take from this story. We are used to thinking as individuals that our behavior has no impact beyond us, or maybe our family. But this story teaches us otherwise. We need to be mindful and think collectively and do what we can to not tip off Herod. Keep our eyes on the prize. The second thing I'm thinking about asks us to dig a little deeper as white folks. Remember the Magi are outsiders. They are outsiders to the Jesus movement. The Jewish annotated New Testament notes that this story foreshadows the gospel being shared with Gentiles, outsiders. Eventually, Gentiles join the Jewish-led movement, and the text almost seems to suggest that's not necessarily a good thing. Or at least, it's a very complicated thing. The Magi don't know what they don't know, and they blunder in ways that have disastrous consequences. Perhaps this story was meant to be instructive. If you Gentiles want to be a part of this movement, then you need to listen to us. Listen to our dreams, says Jesus' community. Follow us on this path. For us white folk, that's a reminder to us that we are joining a movement that already exists, wading into the river of black and brown struggle, and we can practice humility and be led by folks of color who have been dreaming of and acting towards collective liberation and know well the way to get there. Keep our eyes on the prize. 
listen to the dreaming of people of color. Third, and maybe even most deep, the arc of this story feels familiar. The Magi begin their journey on one path. Their embedded power and privilege divert them onto a different path. Their behavior has an impact that they don't feel, really. And yet they recognize they have strayed from the path and return to the road they were always meant to be on. They repent, that is to say. Repent, return, you see? They find the movement that will help them all get free. And they respond with overwhelming joy. And perhaps most importantly, they refuse to collaborate with Herod. That's a story for us, beloveds. The ways of white supremacy are rooted deep in us and pull us off the path to freedom all the time. Sometimes we don't realize it's happening because the ways of white supremacy are so hidden to us. And sometimes we do notice. Sometimes we do know. Either way, when we listen to that embedded voice of privilege and power, we're collaborating with Herod. I love Reverend Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail because it's so clearly written for us white church folk. Reverend Dr. King is clear with us how we collaborate with Herod. Here are his words. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Order over justice, waiting over action. How many times as white folk, as white church folk, as white church folks sitting around our decision-making tables have we chosen order over justice? have chosen waiting over acting. Yes, just like the Magi, we make mistakes. We collaborate with Herod. It's not a switch we can just flip off. Every day I learn something new about how white supremacy shows up in me. The kinds of assumptions I make, for example, the spaces in which I choose silence instead of speaking up. We will make mistakes. Pray that our mistakes don't end in the slaughter of children, but we have to admit, on some level, we know they do. Choosing order over justice, choosing waiting over action, choosing Herod over the star. But we can always repent. We can find each other on the road and help each other refocus, retrain our eyes to the star and find our way together back to the freedom road. Keep our eyes on the prize. Listen to the dreaming of people of color. Refuse to collaborate with Herod. If Reverend Dr. King had a dream, it had to be in part that white people would show up and do our work, do our part to dismantle white supremacy, to refuse to collaborate with the Herods of our day, 
even the Herods that live inside us like a horcrux scarred across our foreheads. But we can learn what Herod sounds like inside us. We can learn the lies he tells. We can learn how to shut him down with the love that beats furiously in our hearts. We can learn over and over how to keep our eyes on the prize. We can learn over and over how to follow the star. For your call to action this week, of course, read the letter from a Birmingham jail, which is easily findable online. Let it work on you, even if you've read it before. Reflect on ways you have collaborated with Herod and what actions you can take to refocus on the star. Better yet, find some folks to read and reflect with and come to action together. We need each other in this work the Magi had each other, and we can do the same. We need to do the same. Also, Surge Faith has been offering some webinars around ways white folk can disrupt white supremacy in our faith and spiritual institutions. So you might get your friends together to listen to one of the webinars we just put up on SoundCloud called The Snatchback, which addresses Christian supremacy, white supremacy, and the system of policing. Soulforce did a wonderful job getting us to think about how we might snatch back our tradition from the Herods of our time. I'll also add a couple of resources about security culture to the transcript for you to read and begin to incorporate those practices into your work. Thanks as always for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with the wonderful Blythe Barno giving us a resistance word for the text for January 28th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. And transcripts are available as well on our website, showingupforracialjustice.org slash podcast. The transcripts include references, credits, and copyright information. Finally, a big thanks to our sound editor this week, Paul Stewart. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much. <laughs>